Thanks, Jim. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11 is where we will be today. Just a couple more weeks in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, then we will move on from here. So the wall is built, the spiritual awakening has begun, and now it's time to revitalize the city of Jerusalem. Stand with me as we read together. Nehemiah chapter 11, we will read the first two verses together and zero in our focus there. Nehemiah 11 verses 1 to 2. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father, may your word speak through the ages through generations of faithful and less than faithful men to us today. Speak to us through your word. Give us wisdom for our lives. Build us into your image for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Back in chapter 7, Nehemiah describes the problem of that Jerusalem now has. The wall was almost uh, done. It was pretty much just being finished. And he looks around and notices, well, the wall is looking good, but there's nothing inside of it. Listen to verse 4 of Nehemiah 7. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been Rebuilt. Now, it may not seem like a big problem, but I want you to picture in your mind a modern-day New York City, sprawling metropolis, a Boston, perhaps a San Francisco, with that iconic bridge and, and, and the houses on top of giant hills and winding streets. Picture that city completely decimated. No one there. It's a ghost town. It's been gone for so long that that weeds have overrun Central Park. People have been gone for so long that the buildings are, well, you you don't even know if you really want to walk in there because you don't know if something will fall from just being left there to rot or to rust. Instead of a busting metropolis, it's nothing. Maybe, Maybe there's a couple hundred people left. The image is stark in your mind, isn't it? Like if a city were just completely destroyed and nothing left of it. That's a stark image. This is what Jerusalem looks like in this day. It's empty. Houses have been torn down. Weeds have been overgrowing everything. And now instead of a sprawling metropolis of its day, Jerusalem lies in ruins. The temple has been rebuilt. So there's a little bit of progress being made. The wall is now standing firm with just a few finishing touches left and a few gates to hang, but it's empty. Remember when I said earlier, Nehemiah tours the city and he tells the folks, he says, you know the the trouble we're in. I mean, it was obvious to anybody looking around when Nehemiah first got there, this city was gonna take a lot of work. It wasn't just about a wall. It was about revitalizing the whole town. And and to be honest with you, I can't really blame folks for living there, for not living there. I mean, there was no protection. But now that the wall's finished, Nehemiah sees the need to repopulate. 
it wasn't just about getting folks into the city. It was about getting folks into the city to revitalize it. People would bring skills to Jerusalem. They would establish the the businesses to provide goods and services to start up the local economy. They would bring money, spending it there, helping others in their quest to grow and increase their wealth. They They would bring their families there. They would need schools. They would need workplaces. They would need homes, community parks. They would need all sorts of things that, that, a, that a city would need to, to be able to support a population. But having nobody there, there's nobody to build it. There's nobody to make it happen. There's nobody to plant those, those, those uh, beautiful flowers or trees in that park. You can picture a dead city that was once alive and now dead and trying to revitalize it. There would take, it would take so much sweat. It would take so much hard work and determination. Nehemiah realizes that it's not just about building the wall. It's about building the city itself. And the wall would help. The wall is what was needed to provide the defense to allow the revitalization in the city. But now it's time to turn your eyes toward the bigger picture. Last week, We talked about the spiritual revival. The people needed to get back into the word of God to recognize their sins, confess them before God and repent of them and turn back to his ways. But now it's time to rub up, rub up your sleeve, roll up your sleeves, get a little elbow grease in there, get to work and rebuild. You see, the rebuilding is never just about the immediate project. The immediate project always serves a bigger purpose. Jerusalem, they did this right, would be a strong, robust city, thriving. But now it's just empty. Great wall, nothing inside. I want to I propose a couple of what I think are truths and then draw a conclusion from that. I believe that we as people, I don't think that we really get into it until we're there. Here, here's what I mean. Any of you ever had kidney stones? Okay. Really? Only? That's surprising. The rest of us, how bad are kidney stones? No big deal. Yeah. I should have known. Mr. Neal, right? How bad are kidney stones? Terrible. That's an interesting difference of perspective, isn't it? Kidney stones are no big deal until you have them, and then they're a really big deal. You see, where you dwell is where you're fully invested. What I mean by that is when you have kidney stones, man, you know it firsthand. You've experienced that firsthand, and so you know that really well. For those of you who have given birth to a child, you know what that childbearing process and that labor process are like. For those that haven't, you'll never know what it's like. For those that have, have um, ever rebuilt their house or built a new house, you know what that process is like. For those that have never built their own house, they don't know. For those that have taken care of a parent that's sick, that's on the edge of death, you know what that's like. Those that haven't, well, we can try to guess and we can try to empathize and we can try to see things kind of in an understanding way, but we don't really get it because we've never been through it. 
We've never had that experience. See, where you dwell, the experiences that you have shape who you are and where you dwell, where you live, where you permanently abide is the place where you are fully invested. In this case, we're talking about people living in the city of Jerusalem. Leaders, this makes sense. They should live in the city, right? Because Jerusalem was going to be the administrative headquarters. In fact, uh, this word for dwell, uh, it's the word to sit. It's the idea that um, we talk about the sitting president. We talk about sitting a new justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, The seats in Congress, we talk about those. We talk about department chairs in universities or even in uh, other schools. We talk about um, we talk about seats as places of authority. A king sitting on the throne is indicative of one who is reigning over his dominion. Right? That's that word dwell. That word dwell is a word that has permanence attached to it. It's not just a I'm just here visiting. Okay? You play Monopoly. And there's that spot, spot on it that says jail. And then around jail, there's that, there's that L where it says just visiting. That's not dwelling. Dwelling isn't the just visiting aisle on the jail space on Monopoly. Uh, dwelling is living there. It's not just renting for a little while while you look for a place. It's buying the house and planting your roots and living there. Where you dwell is where you are fully invested. So the leaders would need to be dwelling in Jerusalem because it would be for their benefit for the city to do well, right? We do this with CEOs. We give them stock options because if the company's doing well, the CEO does better, right? That's the thought. We recognize that where you dwell is where you are fully invested. If you're not dwelling somewhere, it's easy to put it off. How how many times have you heard on the news about a a terrible shooting or some kind of bad event and it is somewhere else and you think that's terrible, that's tragic. Maybe your heart hurts for them. Maybe there's an earthquake or a hurricane or some kind of natural disaster and you hear about it and you think, oh my, I wonder if they need help. Maybe I can send some money or, you know, I've got a chainsaw. Maybe maybe I could ride down there for a few days. We have Baptist Disaster Relief as the third largest disaster relief agency in the United States, only behind the Salvation Army and the Red Cross. And then it's us. And we go to places that, that other people don't go. We go to places and we cut down trees and we and there's a team called Mud Out. You know what they do? They just get the mud out. There's a there's a bad flood. Comes with a bunch of mud. There are teams that go in houses and just scoop out mud. That's what they do. There are places that provide meals or showers. We have shower trailers and meal trailers. We've got an 18-wheeler. The state of Alabama, the the Alabama Baptist uh, Board of Missions, has an 18-wheeler that all it does is provide hot meals in places of disaster. We do those things, and those are great things. But how much worse is it when it's close to home, when the tragedy isn't in some other state, but is right down the street. It hits you harder, doesn't it? See, because where you dwell is where you're fully invested. When it comes close to home, it gets all the more real. So the leaders would definitely need to be in Jerusalem, first for just the convenience of being where the administrative capital is, but also because they needed to be there because they were looking after the welfare of the city. 
And so verse 1 tells us, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. The implication, by the way, this is written, is that they had been living in Jerusalem. This is a thought of, now this is what was already true. And the rest of verse 1 is going to tell us, now we're going to bring more population in. It wasn't a temporary living arrangement. It wasn't just renting. It was, it was buying. They, they, they bought. There's no intention of moving, no pressing investment of efforts or thoughts of the city's leaders other than their neighbors, their friends, their fellow Jerusalemites. By the way, that's why presidents often start their speeches with my fellow Americans. It's a good reminder that we're all part of the same country. And it's so crucial. It's so crucial to see this isn't just something that happens in Jerusalem in 445. Something that's true of us today. Uh, David, Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now where's the house of the Lord? Is it Jerusalem? Or do you think he might be looking at a different type of dwelling place? A more permanent house of the Lord. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We read Psalm 84 earlier. It's so good. Let's read a couple verses of it again. Nicole, hang with me, sorry. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He talks about even birds can find their homes at the altars of God. And then in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. That's so good they have to stop. That's what that Selah means. It means take a pause and reflect on that for a moment. They go on. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. There's another pause. They talk about the, the journey, how good it is to be there. Behold our shield, O Lord, our God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know, one of the Levitical tasks, man, Levites were doing everything. They were doing all kinds of stuff all over the place. Some of them were offering sacrifices. Some of them are, are specific to certain kinds of sacrifices. There were treasurers in the Levitical priesthood that would keep track of not only the money, but keep track of all the goods, all the supplies, making sure everything is clean and in functioning order. There were people that were solely in charge of maintenance. There were janitor Levites, y'all, that all they did was clean. Probably the lowest, the one that's just you can't do much of anything else was the doorkeeper. Somebody who'd stand by the door and make sure that the wrong people didn't come past a certain boundary. The bouncers. Strong backs, weak minds. That's what a doorkeeper was. He says, I'd rather be that. I'd rather just be a doorkeeper than live somewhere else. Do you see? Where you dwell is where you're invested. They're saying, they're saying, God, you... You are so magnificent. Just to be in your presence is great enough. But, but God, I don't just want to be in your presence. I want to dwell in your presence. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty, Psalm 91.1 says. Where you dwell is where you're fully invested. And this is an important aspect of leadership, but it's also true of residence too. It's also true whether, whether you have a title behind your name or whether you have degrees that you can spout off, whether you have a position of esteem or whether you're just a lowly pauper. Whatever position you may find yourself, 
whether you're king or street sweeper, doesn't matter because this applies to you. Where you dwell is where you're fully invested. And Nehemiah knew that they would have to get people into the city that would be fully invested. So what does he do? He holds kind of a form of lottery, but picture instead of Florida lottery where they just pop up the balls and it's random chance, picture them like asking God directly and God saying with every 10th person, him, that family, this family right here, this family. No, I don't want them, them. That's what he does. Look at the end of verse one. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. It wasn't random chance. Lots was a means of devising God's will. It's not exactly like God just writes down everything that he wants. I mean, sure, he's written down the Ten Commandments. He's, he's given the law to Moses, and Moses has copied it down, and it's prescribed in the Word of God. And yes, he's given us the Word, the, the prophetic Word, more fully in, in here than anywhere else. In Second Peter chapter 1, he says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given these things to us so that, so that we can do his will. But sometimes the will isn't a matter of good versus bad. Sometimes the will is this one or that one. It's like breakfast. Do you want waffles or cereal? Neither one's evil. Neither one's necessarily better than the other. Which one do you want? I might not be able to tell, but God knows. God knows. God knows which of those people need to live there. He knows which families need to be in Jerusalem. So they let God decide. They have this lottery, call it the divine lottery, where God determines the outcome. And they trust that God will lead them in this random act to select the right folks. God wanted certain people to dwell in Jerusalem and fully invest in their place of residence. So he hand-selected those individuals. That leads me to my second assertion. You can call them a premise if you like. God has called us to dwell in his habitation. So first, where you dwell is where you are fully invested. Second, God has called us to dwell in his habitation. We're not just to dwell in an earthly city. This is a temporary place. We are looking forward to dwelling elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 5, 2. For in this tent, this body, this flesh, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. What's interesting, though, is that it's not just about us going to dwell in heaven. The New Testament also puts it in the reverse. It's God and his spirit coming to dwell in us. Look at 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. And that's looked forward to a day when that dwelling is made perfect. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It said loud voice, so I had to read it in a loud voice. Sorry for those of you who... His words... Are dwelling us too. Colossians 3.16. John 3.16 is good. Colossians 3.16 is good too. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Let God's words dwell in you richly. Nehemiah is foreshadowing this. God in Jerusalem called specific individuals through lots, made his will known. He chose them to dwell in his city. Now, some of them, well, hang on, I'll get to that in a second. I want you to notice first, though, that he chose them. They didn't choose him. They didn't, they didn't come and say, just wake up one day and say, I feel like moving to Jerusalem. No, God chose them. God said, I want you. I'm drafting you. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you did not choose me. No, I have chosen you. In that day, you want a teacher, you want a leader, you want to follow somebody, you go up to them and you choose them. You say, I want to follow you. That's not how Jesus works. He goes out to pick his own followers. He comes to them and he says, follow me. As a tax collector, follow me. Tax collector leaves the tax booth. Uh, uh, a lifestyle that is, he's not hurting. Let's say it that way. Man, he is, he is abundantly wealthy. Jesus says, come follow me. And he gets up and follows Christ. Does he know the full implications? Probably not. Doesn't matter. He's obedient. There's a couple fishermen. Jesus says, follow me. They drop their nets, leave their boats, and they follow him immediately. One sees, uh, one sees a, uh, a miracle that Jesus does, run back, runs back and tells his brother. So the brother comes along, and they're both talking to Jesus. Jesus says, uh, you follow me. It's follow me, follow me, follow me. It's never, it's never us saying to God, all right, God, you're good enough. I've been watching you for a while. You're really good. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to be your student. No, it's God saying, you follow me. It's God calling out to us. It's God taking the initiative. So we have these two, two premises. Premise one, where we dwell is where we're fully invested. Premise two, God has called us to dwell in his habitation. So let's put the therefore on it. What's the conclusion of these two premises? Our dwelling with God means our complete investment in his work. If we are to dwell with God, we've got to be fully bought in. God has called us, and where we dwell is where we invest all of ourselves, so we should invest all of ourselves in the work that God is doing. Because God has called us, we respond obediently, fully, completely. Verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. This verse can mean two different things. It can mean that they were chosen by Lot and they said yes. It can mean that they said, you know, this is the place I need to be. Either way, it's still God calling them. And either way, it's them responding obediently. They didn't begrudgingly go. They didn't murmur or complain as they packed their boxes and moved into the city. No, they, they went willingly. Some volunteered. God had placed it on their hearts already. I'll go, pick me. Some got selected in lots. I'm willing to go, but let's just see what God wants. He hadn't quite made it so clear that, that I need to be one going, so I'm just going to wait for how the lot falls and see what he says. And then when it comes up on them, saying, absolutely. You know, neither is a terrible answer. Both are relying on God. It, it's... It's just a matter of responding obediently, no matter how he calls. That means when they move into the city, they're willing not only to be present, but to be actively involved in the work that God wants them to do. It means they will actively restore the city. They will rebuild the walls of houses and public places. They will replant the gardens that have 
long been overtaken by weeds. They will reestablish the shops in the marketplace long since closed down. They'll put all their efforts into breathing new life into that old city, making it once again a place for God to put his name out of us. You know, God's called us to be the church. The church, you know what that means? Called out ones. The word for church literally means the people who have been called out. God has called us together as a church. Now, that's big C church. That's whole church. That's all Christians everywhere throughout time. But that's also little C church, local congregation. God has called us into the church. And because we're called into the church, we're not just called to be here. We're called to be active here. We're called to serve here. We're called to go from here, to share the gospel with people around us, to expand the kingdom of God, to do the work of an evangelist, to be the people that God has called us to be. He's called us here not just to sit around. He's called us here to be empowered for the ministry that he wants us to do. Keith Green had a way of just hitting you between the eyes. Look what he says. This generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls on the earth. It's us. You don't need to hear a call. You're already called. God has given us a mission. He has called us to dwell with him in that mission. Yes, right now, we long for a heaven. But while we're longing for heaven, why don't we fulfill part of the Lord's prayer and seek God's will to be done here on earth? In the meantime, God's calling you to something. Are you fully invested in it? Are you dwelling in him? Or are you just renting, merely present for his company? God wants you to dwell. Father, I pray that we would not be so brazen as to think that your call is merely a suggestion, good idea, a gentle nudge. Father, put us under the full weight of what you want us to do. There is somebody that needs to hear about you, and they need to hear from me. Grant the opportunity to speak to them. Now, there's lots of somebodies who need to know you, and and everybody in this building, every, every single individual who has trusted you with their life has said, I will dwell in you. You come dwell in me. If that's the case... God, it's time to put all the chips in and to say we are fully invested in your work. So, Father, help us do that. Help us speak the words that we need to speak to those who need to hear them. God, it's not just speaking words, though. It's living life. It's the way that we treat people. It's the way that we handle our affairs. It's the way that we exemplify you. It's the way that we think about complex situations, the way that we approach a world that is antithetical to your perspective, your truth. Father, give us wisdom and guidance to serve you honorably and to serve you gracefully as we confront a world in need of your light. Father, the call for some of us is to stop playing the church game. Because church is nice, church is great, but you didn't call us to church. You called us to be the church. Not just to be here, 
Not just to be present and accounted for, but to be actively involved doing your will. So Father, today, we shun the rules of diversification and investment and we put all of our eggs in your basket. Today, we forsake everything else to follow you. Today, we stop pretending honestly obey completely. Take every bit of our hearts, every bit of our lives, every bit of us that we've been holding back. Take every word, every thought captive. God, transform us into your image. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Prepare us for that place too. This is your time. You do your will. In Jesus' name.